So it was the Puritan John Owen, he wrote, Meditate on the Word in the Word. Meditate on the Word in the Word. And those words are very true. He re what really he did was he got the connection between the living Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we spoke about him last week, didn't we? We unpacked that. We looked at the Word. And if you remember, we looked at the Logos, the Word, the Memra, and what that meant and, and who he was as God. And we unpacked that's our uh, foundation for everything. You know, it is Christ that everything is built upon, the Word. But we cannot disconnect the living word from the written word. So last week we looked at effectively, this is what we're going to be doing. We're going to be going through and, and picking out uh, areas from Christ's life, a little bit more so when we, we get into some of the other doctrines. But we're, we're, we're dealing with systematic theology here. We're dealing in doctrines. So we started with Christology, really, the study of Christ. That's kind of what we looked at. And although we just touched the surface, we got the most important point that he is God, he is the word. Now we're going to have a look at the word of the word, which effectively is bibliology. It's a study of the Bible. So we have the living word, and that's the foundation. Then upon that, we have the written word that then enables us to build the structures. None of the other stuff is foundation. It is the living word and the written word that complete the foundation for the building that is the Christian life today. Everything that's built upon that is a structure that we take from the word of God through the revelation of the word written in the living word. That's, that's the principle that we're building doctrinally. Now, you may say, well, well, why is it even important to talk about this, Pastor? Why this morning have you chose to talk about bibliology? We know what the Bible is. We have a Bible. You either have it in your hand, you have it in your phone, hopefully. But hopefully, you've came here this morning and you have access as a person to a Bible. You know what the Bible is. And you come to a church that says they believe the Bible. So why are we now unpacking this doctrine? We're going to call it bibliology, the study of the Bible. Why, why, why? Why can't we go on to something else, Pastor? We know this stuff. Now, you may know that, and that's because you've had a rich heritage of biblical teaching at this church. But that ain't the case everywhere. Have a look at this quote. If you can read it, I can just about read it. I'll read it for you. I let go of the notion that the Bible is a defined product. I learned that it is a human cultural product, the product of two ancient communities, biblical Israel and early Christianity. As such, it contained their understandings and affirmations, not statements coming directly uh, or somewhat directly from God. I realized that whatever divine revelation and the inspiration of the Bible meant, if they meant anything, they did not mean that the Bible was a divine product with divine authority. What do you think of that statement, church? Rubbish. If I told you that was from an atheist, would you have a problem with it? Why? Because that seems like an atheist position, doesn't it? If I told you this was from a so-called Christian, how would that change things? This is from a man called Marcus Borg. Marcus Borg, he, he's, he's dead now. And, well, I, don't, I was going to say something very reverent there. I'm not going to do it. Uh, <laughs> he's dead now. But um, this is the man that led what's called progressive Christianity. 
And progressive Christianity, you know, takes the idea that scripture isn't really, there's no, no, not literal stories, they're kind of myths, allegories, um, you know, maybe good teachings, but, um, you know, context has moved on, you know, the world's moved on and, and it's not for us today. Um, it forms the ecumenical movement that, you know, all roads lead to God and it pursues social and political views. You know, whatever the current social and political view is, let's go with it. Progressive Christianity. Now, unfortunately, this is becoming mainstream Christianity. This is, this is the outworkings of liberalism, really. This is where this takes this. And so you say, well, how is that going today? When you see the great churches, Church of England, uh, Methodism, other, others, Dealing with issues as same-sex marriage and coming to the conclusion that, that, that it's okay before God, that's progressive Christianity. It's progressive Christianity. So what's the problem of progressive Christianity? The problem there is highlighted. They do not see the Bible as divine or inspired. They do not see the Bible as the word of the word. So why is it important that we deal with these doctrines? Why is it important we look at it? Because of what everything else is out there. We need to affirm our biblical foundations so that when we deal with others who come from this, because here's, here's, the, here's the issue. Uh, Tim Keller calls this the feeder beliefs. And the feeder belief is, if you go and talk to somebody, right, so let's talk about same-sex marriage because that's, that's an easy one to talk about. You go and talk to somebody and says, this is what God says about same-sex marriage. And they say, no, I don't, I don't see that. God's a God of love. What's the problem? Their defeater belief is they don't see the Bible as divine, authoritative, and sufficient for life. You do. So you say, this is what God says. And their defeater belief is, well, I don't believe the Bible's inspired. So what you're saying doesn't goes over their head. So that's why you get stuck in these arguments. So what do we do? What are we to do there? We are to try and teach them why we believe that the Bible is inspired, that it is authoritative, that it is the word of the word. Because it's only when they see that, well, then they come to the position that's God's position. You see what I'm saying? So we've got to teach them, we've got to show them. So what's out there, you know, in, in Christendom, when I say Christendom, I mean the whole kitten caboodle, right? Every, 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 every strand and ism and schism that kind of claims any kind of form to Christendom, Christianity. And out there you'll find that there's rationalism, Roman Catholicism, there's mysticism, and in relation to the views towards the Bible, this is. There's neo-orthodoxy, there's the cults, and then there's orthodoxy. So what are all them terms? Just quickly speaking, rationalism is, is the product of man's reason. Everyone can reason down. It's really a humanistic way of looking at the scriptures. It's, it's, it's liberalism, really. You know, we know better. We can all reason it out. It really extends from Greek uh, philosophy, going from Plato on, this whole concept that everyone can be known by, by knowledge and reasoned out, including God. So when somebody's a rationalist, they look at it and go, reason, you know, two people love each other, that's fine. Well, let's ignore the divine, supernatural, and let's go with what man thinks. And then you've got Roman Catholicism, and their view of the scripture is that they gave the scripture to the church that they stand above 
scripture. And they are traditions. They are the keepers, the gatekeepers of the body of Christ. That's, that's Roman Catholicism in a nutshell. So they believe that the Catholic Church has authority over the Bible. They're the keepers of it. That they gave it. So they add that, the traditions of the church, and then the final authority of the Pope. So when the Pope speaks ex cathedra, uh, Latin from the chair, it means that he's literally speaking the word of God. And if it's something new, it supersedes whatever's gone before. So that, that's a view of Roman Catholicism. Mysticism, what's that? This is the experience-based stuff. That experience trumps scripture. That it doesn't matter exactly what God says, it matters what we've experienced. So this is New Ageism. This is the uh, New Apostolic Reformation stuff, if, you, if you've seen that. It's, it's, it's all experience over scripture. So you can see the weight of these things as they go. Neo-Orthodoxy, you may or may have not come across this. Um, people involved in this, Karl Barth, following on from Manuel Kant. And kind of Neo-Orthodoxy really means that the Bible isn't a faultless book. But when it speaks to you personally in a crisis experience, right? So we, we've been through this. You know, whenever you're, you're on your knees before God and you go to the Word of God and God gives you something and it blesses your spirit. New orthodoxy is that that's when the Word of God becomes the Word of God, when it's speaking to you. But when it's not, when it's just you're reading it or whatever, it isn't. So it's this like on-off type of authority and inspiration. And uh, absolutely, we're, we're not with that at all. The cults then, what do they do? Well, they'll often, you know, if you've met, dealt with any Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, they'll say, oh, we hold the Bible up. Yeah, we believe the Bible. I know how many Jehovah's Witnesses have said, oh, yes, we believe the Bible. We're, we're in the same, we're in the same thing. Are we? No, we're not. Remember, defeater beliefs. What's their defeater belief? Their defeater belief is, the Bible's the Bible, but we have other authorities that are higher than that. So when you go Bible to Bible, their defeater belief they put up is, no, but this is what the Watchtower says. This is what the um, Book of Mormon says. You see? So this is how they defeat their beliefs. This is why it gets frustrating sometimes when you're dealing with people and you're trying to argue from the Bible and they're not getting it. And you're going, it's, it's there. It's clear. Why can't you see it? Defeater belief. goes over their head because they're like, yeah, this is not, to me, it's not the final authority. Let's go to the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon itself, it says another uh, testament of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what the cults do. Then there's orthodoxy. And we are orthodox. You know, we've looked at, if you've been in the Bible studies, you'll hear me hammering about orthodoxy, even in, in the Sunday mornings I've done it. Right praise, right worship. It means right before God. Ortho, straight, right. Doxy, praise. But we call it right doctrine. That's what we kind of associate it with. And, and what is orthodoxy in its original form? It's this, that the Bible is infallible and inerrant. We'll look at these terms as we go. Infallible, without fault, and inerrant, without error. The Bible is the only rule of faith and practice, so that rules out the experience as being the starting point. Now, we can't rule out experience. I want to say that. That's important. Just because we hold to the Word of God as being the, the, the primary the foundation doesn't mean that we really experience. Because we all have experiences. It's just they have to be rooted in the Word of God. You understand? So you, can, you want to throw it out. You want to make sure that it's rooted in the Word of God because we all have experiences in life. But if it doesn't match with the Scripture, we go, 
I don't care what experience I've had, it's false. Or it's filling me, or it's deceiving me. The word of God is the, is the foundation. So it's an asymmetrical relationship. We don't put them on a par. We put the Bible first. And, and that's the other thought, that human reason and knowledge must be made subject to the Scripture. Whatever we think, this is dealing with rationalism, whatever we think, whatever we think we know, has to be made uh, in, in line and made subject to the authority and weight of the Word of God. No matter how clever we think we are with the argument, we have to defer to the Word of God. And then the other thing, there's no divine revelation beyond Scripture. So this is, this is God's revealed word from beginning to end. He has told us everything he needs us to know. This is not the same as the Holy Spirit leading and guiding us. That's a separate thing. This is working. But in terms of revelation of God's plan, his purposes, everything else, this is it. Genesis, the revelation. He has told us all that he wants to tell us in that aspect. So nobody can come along and say something else is more divinely revealed than this. Impossible. This is the word of God. So at the church here, Melton Baptist Church in Stoke, my own personal position, I probably wouldn't have hired me as pastor, is that I stand upon this orthodox position. We, we call it this. This is our belief at the church. Verbal, plenary, inspiration. Verbal, you can be the verbal, you can be the plenary, and you can be the inspiration. How about that? <laughs> verbal, all the words. Or the words, sorry. Plenary, all of them are fully authoritative. Not parts of it, all of it. And then inspiration is the fact that God supernaturally guided the biblical authors to write exactly the things that he wanted them to write. The result of this is Holy Scripture. It's the Word of God. And so to summarize that, we go to a famous, famous verse, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete or perfect, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we look at that and we see verbal plenary inspiration. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That word inspiration, Greek, theonoustos. You know, we've said it often again. Theo, God, noustos, uh, breathe, literally breathe. So the first to Timothy says, all scripture is literally God breathed. It's his words. So as I breathe, I form words through vocal cords. This, the word of God is the breath of God. It's all important. So all scripture is given by inspiration of God. So when we're dealing with bibliology, when we're dealing with some of these things, and you hopefully can see this on the screen, when we're dealing with some of these things, there's, there's terms that are thrown out there. And absolutely, we have to make sure we understand all our terms. So that when I say inspiration, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, we've got to know what that means. If we're going to tell somebody else about it, we've got to know what it means. If I, you know, I've talked about revelation from God. We've got to know what that means. So, and, and this is kind of the, the process. This is the process of God and man and the, the, the communication between them two. Let's, let's look, look at it. So revelation, as you can see there, is God communicating to man that which otherwise would not be known. Number one, he does this through general revelation. What I mean by general revelation? I mean creation, conscience. I think, therefore I am. If I think, then a God must be there type thinking. I can think. 
must be created. Look at creation and I can see a creator. That's general revelation. And then there's special revelation, which is the Lord Jesus Christ and the Word of God. Some people will say Israel as well, but, and, but it's really Christ and, and his Word. The Word and the Word of the Word. Inspiration, and we're talking about this, we'll expand on it, is the accurate recording of God's truth. Illumination. It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit making the truth of the Scripture clear to men. Interpretation. That's the individual's understanding. So these are the processes. Number one, revelation. God revealing that which cannot be known. So he reveals himself to humanity through his creation, first and foremost. Then we have the inspiration. That's the accurate recording of God's word. We have that in the Bible. Then we have this gap in between. The gap in between cannot be um, uh, uh, passed or, 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 or jumped or reached outside of the Spirit of God working in the human heart. This is illumination. This is why people that are lost, that sit in universities, that say they've read the Bible and they know it all and, and will give you stuff about it, are, 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 are land. They don't know it. They don't know it. You can't know the deeper things of God unless the Holy Spirit illuminates you to them truths. Uh, you know, this is, you don't reach, reach the knowledge of God by your own simple understanding. You don't put God and get all these theological doctrines because you're a clever person, although that does help. It's God doing the illumination. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's why an unregenerate man cannot look at the Bible the way a regenerated person can. Can't see it. Can't see it because God needs to do the illumination. These are the things of God. And, and then we get this interpretation. So God may be illuminating us to the truth, but then we have interpretation. This is the bit where we come in and we're like, we use the methods that we look at Scripture and we come away with what God's trying to tell us through these Scriptures. Oftentimes, uh, we get it wrong if we don't stick to a proper interpretation uh, method. So at, at Milton Baptist Church, we believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. We mean that it's an accurate recording of God's truth and we understand that God has to illuminate these truths to us. And so we believe that the, on the authority of the Word of God. R.C. Sproul says the authority of the Bible is based on the fact that it is the written Word of God. That should be enough. It should be enough. Unfortunately, it's not. So let's look at this process of inspiration. That's what I want to do. And then we're going to go and have a look at some uh, different examples. But here's a definition of inspiration so that we just kind of get this term, because if we're, we're, we're going to go and share this with others, we've got to understand it a little bit. So Charles Rari says this. This is the definition of inspiration. God's superintendence of the human authors so that using their own individual personalities, they composed and recorded without error his revelation to man in the words of the original autographs. So God stood over his word. He superintended his word so that those that were writing his word wrote through their own personalities and in the originals, original autographs, they are absolutely without error. They are exactly what God wanted to be written. So he used in the human authors, he used their styles, but yet everything that he wanted said was said. So this is kind of like a dual authorship, if you like. It's not that 
um, you know, we put any human um, kind of uh, stance upon the Word of God, because we, when we say dual authorship, but what's happening is that the divine element, so God is superintending this process, and so he has to be in complete control, because it's, it's his word. Yet the divine element wasn't conscious to the authors as they wrote. Otherwise, otherwise, human authorship would be violated. Their personalities would be taken away, and it would be literally God dictating. So again, I know that's, this is like Trinitarianism, isn't it, really? It's like... God was in complete control. The divine element was in complete control. But the writers weren't conscious that the divine element was in complete control. They're writing under the inspiration of God. So God is, is, is supernaturally working so that everything he once wrote is wrote. But yet they're not being controlled like robots. There's free will in there, so there are personalities and everything else. And God is over that process. Now that should boggle your mind, right? It should, because that's what God does each and every day in all of us. He is over us, but yet we're not conscious that he's moving and shaping us and, and, and things in our lives. And we'll talk about that even tonight in the testimony time. That God is in control, always moving, and moving his people and moving the scenes he's behind. So this is the process of inspiration. They're writing but yet they're not writing like, okay, God. So you go to, go to the Bible, you go to Jeremiah, you'll find that the Lord says to Jeremiah, write this. That's not what's happening in the New Testament. That's not what's happening in other places. God is moving. Peter tells us this. This is a method of inspiration. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So the men were directed by the Holy Spirit, but they wrote as they would have written. But yet God was over all, and everything that God wanted to be in there was in there. Nothing missed, nothing added, everything. This is the sufficiency of the word of God. So if we, if we sum up this thought of inspiration, verbal plenary inspiration, Grudem says this, the major teachings of the Bible about itself can be classified into four characteristics. Number one, the authority of Scripture. Number two, the clarity of Scripture. Number three, the necessity of Scripture. And number four, the sufficiency of Scripture. So, verbal plenary inspiration, that's what we believe here. Every time I go to the Word of God, when I prepare a sermon, I prepare it upon that truth, that God has inspired every single word, that it is inerrant, that it is authoritative, that it is sufficient, it is enough for us. So we take what God says and we stay with what God says and that determines everything else. We do not adopt God's Word to fit the culture. It should be countercultural in a lot of aspects because this world is sold into the enemy. We stand upon the word of God. So that's all great to say. So why do I believe it then? You know, what's, what's our evidences? We've got to look at some evidences quickly. Number one, you've got the witness of Scripture. Because there's verses in Scripture that affirm or self-affirming that Scripture is true. So, first of all, John 17, 17, sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. That's the Lord Jesus. If he's God, 
You know, even the <laughs> loosest liberal will generally affirm that Christ is God. Well, Christ is saying here, affirm them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So it's affirming. Psalm 12, verses 6 and 7, the Lord's word of the Lord are pure words. A silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. So we've got the, the witness in Scripture that there's affirming that the words that are in there are true words, that they're God's words, they're eternal words. What else? We've got uh, verses in Scripture where the argument of the whole text is based upon other parts in the Word of God. So in Matthew 19, verse 4, Jesus says this, And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? What's he referencing? He's referencing Scripture. Jesus is dealing with the, the Pharisees here. He's dealing with the, the gainsayers. And he's saying, Have ye not read? He repeats this quite a bit. Have ye not read? What's he doing? He's pointing to the Word of God. So the Word of God is pointing to the Word of God. It's self-affirming itself as God's Word, as authoritative, as eternal. Forever your words are, are, are preserved. And then we have these references where Jesus himself will say, have you not read? He does it again in Matthew 22, verse 31. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God? So again, the Bible itself affirms itself. So it's contradictory. This is the point I want to make to you this morning. To say that we believe the Bible and not believe that the Bible is the Word of God. So the statement that was made by our friend Marcus Borg doesn't line up with the statement of Scripture itself. So that's one of our witnesses. Second witness, the witness of history. The witness of history. Why do we believe the verbal plenary inspiration of God? The witness of history. I mean, you think about its continuity through history. As a book that's written over three continents, I think. Three continents, three continents. Many of people groups. Three different languages in there. How many years from, from Genesis to, to when the last book of the Bible was written, Revelation? different authors but yet without contradiction with one theme running through it I mean when we look at history there is nothing like it nothing nothing absolutely nothing at all so it's continuity is a witness to this being God's book and God's word affirming the self-affirming claims of scripture heaven and earth will pass away but my word won't. So we've got his continuity. We've got a survival there in that. That Again, it's just <laughs> how many people have come along? How many regimes? How many dictators? How many antichrists have come along and tried to destroy and wipe out the word of God? Have a look in history. And you'll see. Have a look at the Roman emperors and see what they tried to do. Have a look at all those that made these great prophecies that, you know, the Bible will be done and dusted. Voltaire, the, the atheist in the 18th century, said in a hundred years the Bible will be gone. Uh -uh. 
He's gone. The Bible ain't gone. It's continuity. It's survival. Look at the witness of history and the influence of the Bible. It's unparalleled. It's unparalleled. I mean, you know, we're not have the time to go into all this this morning. You know, go and look at yourself. But it's unparalleled. And these are the things that we need to be sharing with those that don't hold the same position that we do about the inspiration of the Word of God. Look at the witness of history, the continuity, the survival, the influence. You know, governments formed, democracies formed, hospitals, social care. You could go on and on and on. The influence that the Bible has had in human history is unparalleled. It's unparalleled. So when we're looking at the evidence, you know, our faith isn't blind faith. People forget. Nobody has blind faith. Blind faith doesn't exist. Our faith is educated faith. We believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Word of God because of the witness of Scripture, because of the witness of history. But more importantly and most importantly, I believe it because of the witness of Jesus. The witness of Jesus. Because Jesus affirms the authority and sufficiency of the Word of God. As he lives his life, as he comes to this earth, God in flesh, he walks amongst his creation, and he, everywhere he goes, he's affirming the Word of God as the Word of God. He doesn't take the position of progressive Christianity. Absolutely not. The fact that it's a more of a regressive Christianity he goes for. Let's get back to the way it should be. Let's get back to the book. Let's get back to the way that we used to walk and trust God for if he said it, that was it, and we used to live it. Of course, Jesus, when he comes to the earth, doesn't he? He's dealing with the religious establishment and their form of progressive Judaism. And he keeps saying, have you not read? Have you not read? Getting them back. So Jesus affirmed scripture. He affirmed the fact that everything was important. Matthew 5, 17, Think not I come to destroy the law of the prophets. I am come to not to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily and truly I say unto you, till heaven and earth shall pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. So he's dealing with the letters of the Hebrew. saying even the letters are important. As heaven and earth won't pass away in Matthew 24, verse 35. This is Jesus saying the words are eternal. Luke 24 and verse 27. Ruth and what does Jesus do? A beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures concerning himself. He affirmed the truth of the Word of God. He affirmed bibliology in terms of verbal, plenary inspiration. He, when he went to teach, he went to the Old Testament and went through it all, the things concerning himself. He affirmed the Word as the Word. Then in his temptation, what does he do every time? And he's shown a pattern for us. This is what Jesus is doing as much as the temptation. He's proving himself faithful to the Father. 
He's also laying down the marker for us, for when we face temptation and trial. The devil comes at, comes at him, comes at him, comes at him. Every time Jesus responds with the word of God, because he believed it was sufficient. He believed that it was authoritative. He believed that it was the word of God. John 4, 4, but he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceed out of the, I want to get this, the mouth of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16, all scripture was given by inspiration, theo, noustos, literally from the mouth of God. So why do we believe in verbal planning inspiration? We've got the witness of history. We've got the witness of scripture itself. More importantly, we've got the witness of Jesus. He's the foundation of everything else. He's the word and the word affirmed the word. But by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, verbal, plenary inspiration. Those are the theological terms for simply taking Jesus at his word. If Jesus says it, it's good enough for me. If he says every word is from the mouth of God, that's good enough for me. And we take that position, we stand upon that position. And Jesus himself said, John 10, 35, Jesus answered them, it is not written in your law, I said, you're gods, if you call them gods, lowercase g, unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken. That's what we stand upon. That's what you should stand upon. Don't doubt it. Don't doubt what God says. How many of you have, I don't know, maybe this is just Bible students, but certainly in my, my early days, and as I was, <laughs> as I was you know, studying more, I would come across something that seemed to contradict something that I'd read. And I would start to panic. Just a little bit. Like, oh no. Because, you know, you're, you're taught by your pastor. Every word's inspired. No contradictions in the Bible. And then you, you get something like, oh, that looks like a contradiction. Oh, I need to... Then you go away and look at it. Take some time. And you quickly realize it isn't a contradiction. It's just on first reading. It seems like that to you, but you forgot you're not God. So you go away and study it and look at it and you see the different perspectives. And you say, actually, it's not a contradiction. Uh, it usually complements. See, every word is inspired. We don't have to do that. We don't have to wobble a little when somebody comes along and throws a contradiction. You say, well, there is, I know there's no contradictions in the word of God. I don't know the understanding of that now. I'll go away and look at it. But here's what I do believe. I believe that every word in the Bible is inspired. It is given by God. I believe absolutely because it's given by God, and because Jesus affirmed that that word is from God, and Jesus himself says that these words are, are, are what we should live by, every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, because Jesus believed it, I believe it. But more so than that, I can look at history and I can see how this book has been supernatural and its survival, its impact, its continuity. So these are, these are the things that I believe. I mean, Scripture itself tells and speaks to itself as truth. So I believe that. And if God is God, this is what I stand upon. Therefore, 
There are no contradictions in this book, so there will be an answer for what you're saying. When you're dealing with the Jehovah's Witnesses, and say, look, I want, I want to talk about the Bible and why I believe that this is the final authority. Let's talk about that. When you're dealing with uh, anybody from, from maybe Roman Catholicism that wants to say that, no, this, the way we do this is, 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 is uh, more authoritative than what you're telling me from the Bible. Go back and say, well, this is why I believe that this is fully authoritative because this is God's word. And this is what this means to me. Just throw the term out. This is what it means. Because we want to be people of the book. But we want to, we want to know why we're people of the book. Not to ba- uh, brag or boast or put ourselves above anybody else. That's not what it is. So that we know why and then we can explain to others. So that as we witness to them, the defeater belief that they've put up, that actually there are other authorities above the word of God, you can then tackle and bring them to a point where they're accepting the word of God as the final authority, now you can speak truth into their life because they will hear you. They'll listen. But you've got to be able to explain why we believe verbal plenary inspiration. And that's what we do. Praise God at this church, you're a pastor, the pastor before you, the pastor before that, stands upon that truth. I will not ever, so Lord, strike me down, depart from that truth. If I depart from that truth, I depart from God. That's my own opinion. I have nowhere else to go. Anywhere else I go, it's got fault and it's got error. But God's word is without fault. It's infallible. It's without error. It's an errand. That's what Peter said. We looked at that last week. Where should I go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. So we've got to stand upon this. Augustine, writing all those years ago, said this. Ironic that he flittered a bit himself on this, but anyway, he said this, and it's true. The faith will totter if the authority of the Holy Scripture loses its hold on men. We must surrender ourselves to the authority of Holy Scripture, for it can neither mislead or be misled. So we want to stand upon these truths. We want to stand upon the truth that this is the word of God. This needs to be the steering wheel that directs us as a church, as individuals, as we walk in this world. That this is God's word. All of it. And if we stay on that path, we'll be on the right path. Now we've got to practice truth and love. Absolutely. This is not cold Christianity because we believe these truths. We've got to practice truth and love. And we should stand with pride on those that have gone before us, that have stood on this truth of verbal plenary inspiration, that have given their lives for this truth down through the ages, which brings us nicely to Luther. And we're going to close with Luther. I said Psalm 46 this morning. But, you know, we know Martin Luther, the great reformer. We know how his views were challenged by the church. They didn't like what he was saying and what was, what was going out, out there. In 1513... He's called to this council. It's called the Diet of Worms. This is not a new, new it's not a middle-aged dieting thing. Okay, so Worms is a place. The diet was just the council. If you want to lose weight, you could go on a diet of worms. It would probably work, but there you go. Uh, so he's called to this, this council. He's called to, to give an explanation for the things that he's been writing that have been seen as negative against the church and as individuals that are highly influential within the, in the state and the social system. So he's called... 
Um, so, uh, no, sorry, um, in 1521, that is, he's called. January 1521, he's called to appear. There are kind of positions. Here's one of the uh, English translations of some of what he said. So he's called for this council, and he's given an answer for what he's saying. He says, says this, Yet I am a mere man, and not God. I will defend myself after the example of Jesus Christ, who said... If I have spoken evil, bear witness against me. But if well, why does this strike me? John 18, verse 23. How much more should I, who am but dust and ashes, and so prone to error, desire that everyone should bring forward what he can against my doctrine? Therefore, my most serene emperor, and you illustrious princes, and all, whether high or low, who hear me, I implore you by the mercies of God, to prove to me by the writings of the prophets and the apostles that I am of an error. As soon as I shall be convinced, I will instantly retract all my errors and will myself be the first to seize my writings and commit them to the flames. What's he saying? I believe in verbal plenary inspiration. And if you can show me from the word of God that the word of God says something different to what I've been saying, I will immediately recant and I will throw all my reins in the fire. He said, God's the authority here. That's the authority. There's other things that he says. It's, it's, it's a tremendous piece of oration. really is, if you want to go and read it. It's on the internet, widely available. But after hearing this, he's then asked a little later by Charles V to, to repeat what he said in German, in Latin, and he's told to keep it simple. Because he's, he's quite the speaker. He's told to keep it simple. And he's told the answer simply whether he would retract his statements or stand by them. And this is what brings us probably the most famous passage of his speech. Luther said this in response to that. Since your most serene majesty and your highness require of me a simple, clear, and direct answer, I will give one. And it is this. I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or to the Council because it is clear that they have fallen into error and even into inconsistency with themselves. If, then, I am not convinced by proof from Holy Scripture or by cognate reasons, if I am not satisfied by the very text that I have cited, and if my judgment in this is not way brought into subjection to God's word, I neither can nor will retract anything. For it cannot be either safe or honest for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand. I can do no otherwise. God help me. Amen. Martin Luther believed in verbal plenary inspiration and he put his life on the line for it. The saints of the past believed in verbal plenary inspiration and they put their lives on the line for it. Saints of today are falling away from that truth that has held the body of Christ together since the church began. We need to make a stand and not to be ashamed about it, 
not to be ashamed to be called a Bible basher. Oh, those fundamentalists, all oh, those people, all oh, their Bible. No, no, no. We want to be able to say, hold on, what do you think about the Word of God? Let me tell you what I think about the Word of God. Let me tell you why I believe it's authoritative. Let me tell you why I believe it's sufficient. Let me tell you why the Word of God speaks to itself of its authoritative nature. And let me tell you why I make my stand upon the Word of God. And then hopefully we can reach people that have fallen and fallen further into this progressive Christianity that has taken people away from the authority of the Word of God. We believe in the living Word and the written Word. And if we get those doctrines right, as Christ did, we will go on and we will build the house that God wants us to build in the way that he wants us to build it in the context and culture that we're living in. Let's pray.